Today's subject was also at the centre of a controversial biography. In our second episode looking at early life writing, we look at works by and about Mary Wollstonecraft. Unlike James Boswell, who we met in the last episode, it was Wollstonecraft herself who received the backlash. Her attitudes were ahead of their time, and so maybe was her lifestyle, and it was the exposure of this that saw her reputation suffer after the publication of her memoirs, written by then-husband William Godwin. Wollstonecraft achieved a lot in her slim 38 years, including observing the French Revolution and authoring what are now seen as landmark feminist works. You can see how significant and how important a person she is in sort of cultural history when you realise that, you know, we've been talking about the literary world in Britain and Europe and we've been talking about explorers in the Pacific and, you know, all these things and we haven't actually come across one other author, you know, female author apart from those two women who were writing cookery books. Um, And Mary Wollstonecraft um, was somebody who um, broke the barriers, really. Um, In a way, she broke them almost too well and then consequently um, her reputation suffered until she was sort of rediscovered. Um, But this is the story we'll, we'll talk about now. Welcome to Meet a Rare Book. I'm Mark Gosper. Guiding us along the way and sharing the remarkable stories they contain is librarian and rare book expert, Georgia Prince. They're still not popular books. They are artworks. Yeah, absolutely. This is me following a trail of interest that I've actually been following for quite a long time, which is the story of Mary Wollstonecraft. And... This is the most interesting and most recent biography of her, written by a woman called Lyndall Gordon, which is extremely good. But I've read various things over the years, and I can remember that one of the first things that sort of sparked my interest was reading an article here in one of the rare book journals in the days when we used to have rare book journals before they ceased, which is basically what's happened to most of them, um, which pointed out the... Uh, family connection between Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley um, <clears throat> because at that, up to that point I hadn't really made the link. So um, Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, um, is the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft um, and it's an interesting family um, connection. Of course, she married Percy Shelley, the um, romantic poet, um, but her actual... Mary Shelley's actual birth name was Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, um, and she was the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin. And that's part of the story I'm just going to tell here with three books. This is the first book I'm going to talk about, which is her famous um, Rights of Women, um, which was published in 1792. Now, all these books that I've got in front of me are all books that were published by Joseph Johnson of London, who was, um, he's referred to as a radical publisher, (laughs) but he wasn't so radical that he went and got imprisoned or anything. We're not talking about um, treason trials and various other things that happened in the 1790s. He knew how to 
um, to tread the fine line and not actually end up in prison. Um, but he was a great supporter of a number of interesting um, authors. I mean, he published Humphrey Davy, the scientist, for instance. Um, he published Thomas Malthus on, um, you know, population. He published William Cooper on poetry. Um, and among other people, he published Mary Wollstonecraft um, and William Godwin. Um, and these books are all published by him. Uh, they don't have illustrations, so we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at pictures, which means I may have possibly have a hope of getting through three of them, yeah. um, <laughs> maybe. Um, and they're all octavos, even though I haven't, you know, they've obviously started off with different size paper, as it were. They're all small um, publications, so they've all been published in and folded into eights, which is what an octavo is. Um, and it's a common um, format for these sorts of books, which um, are referred to, um, well, at least this one would be referred to as, a, as like a political um, philosophy, really, um, which is certainly one of um, Joseph Johnson's areas of interest. Um, so it's called A Vindication of the Rights of Women with Strictures on Political and Moral Subjects by Mary Wollstonecraft, published in 1792 um, and printed for J. Johnson, who's Joseph Johnson. Um, it's sort of interesting how she came to this point, really, um, because she started out um, as, you know, the, second, the, the eldest daughter in a, in, in a, in a family of seven um, with a fairly feckless father um, who had inherited money from the grandfather who had made money in trade as a weaver, born in London, the father sort of decided um, he wanted to be a gentleman farmer and basically wasted the money moving around the country um, and leaving his children to have to fend for themselves and earn a living. And like a lot of women at this stage, you know, there weren't very many options open for women on their own um, making a living. Um, so she tried various classic things around, um, particularly around teaching, and that's where she started her... Um, philosophy, if you like, was through um, Thoughts About Education. That was, I can't remember the exact title of it, but there's a book where she, where she writes about her, her, edu her theories of education because she, um, she, she started, she did work as a lady's companion. You know, that must have driven her utterly mad. Um, and then she set up a school with her sisters, um, so a little group of, of um, teaching um, you know, small groups, which is often what happened, which didn't work terribly well. Um, she became a governess um, to a wealthy family in Ireland. Um, and through these um, channels, I suppose, she made contacts with various people. She started to write and she met Joseph Johnson and he was the one who really supported her, her move into trying to make a living from writing. Um, she moved to London and started to write for him, doing reviews for his um, periodical. I think it was called the Analytical Review or something. And, um, and yeah, testing her writing, doing translations. I mean, she learnt, you know, like three languages in the matter of, you know, a few years, you know, translating French, German, Dutch. You know, this is before women ever had any access to formal university education. So she's a self-taught um, and obviously a very clever woman. Um, and 
as she sort of tested her um, her writing, I suppose, um, she was sort of fired into action by um, the French Revolution, as so many um, thinkers, if you like, and politicians in Britain were. Um, and what particularly exercised her was Edmund Burke writing um, on the French Revolution, um, which his his book, which was... Uh, um, sort of unexpected, really, from him because he was supposedly uh, left, well, at least not a Tory, not a not a real hard conservative. You know, he was friends with the, um, you know, with with the so called left wing, but I mean they were all aristocratic um, party in Parliament. Um, he came out very strongly against the French Revolution, um, a very pessimistic view of what was going to happen, where the rest of Europe's liberals were sort of deeply excited and, and, and thrilled at the thought of um, this new possibilities for liberty. Um, and so he produced this book, and at the end of 1790, like it was published November 1790, in one month she had written <laughs> her um, reply to Edmund Burke, um, which was called A Vindication of the Rights of Men. Um, and that's her first foray, if you like, into this type of political writing. And that was written in 1790. Um, and, and that's before Tom Paine, um, who also replied to um, Burke with, a, with his Rights of Man book. Uh, and that was, um, again, published by Joseph Johnson. Um, anyway, um, I thought it's quite fun to read some of, out from some of these books because you get to hear her voice. Because she sounds from, you know, frequently, not always, but frequently very modern. Um, and this is actually the second edition um, because it was so popular. I mean, she they sold out 3,000 copies um, in, in that first year. Um, and towards the end of the year, there was a second edition published. And in this one, she dedicates it to Talleyrand, who was um, a French... Um, politician um, who was sort of part of that early part of the revolution um, because the French are busy drafting laws and she um, is very interested to hear what they're going to do um, for women because this whole thing is about liberty in inverted commas so liberty for whom um, so what does she say here um, consider I think yes consider I I'd I address you as a legislator whether when men contend for their freedom and to be allowed to judge for themselves respecting their own happiness, it be not inconsistent and unjust to subjugate women, even though you firmly believe that you are acting in the manner best calculated to promote their happiness. Who made man the exclusive judge if women partake with him the gift of reason? Um, you know, so the, these are the, you know, so in these, in this style, argue tyrants of every denomination, from the weak king to the weak father of a family. They are all eager to crush reason, yet always assert that they usurp its throne only to be useful. Do you not act as a similar part when you force, which is in the italics, force all women by denying them civil and political rights to remain immured in their families, groping in the dark. You know, so she she's very forceful in her arguments. For surely, sir, you will not assert that a duty can be binding which is not founded on reason. And so 
you know, she the, these are this this is her dedication to tell you around. This this is not even the beginning of the book. Um, <laughs> um, so what of that? What of the some of the other things she says? Um, um, I, so I mean, her a lot of her argument is that um, women may appear. Um, as if they aren't reasonable, but this is a fault of their education. You know, they're trained to be superficial, and what you have to do um, in order to um, allow them their full potential is to actually educate them properly. This, this, this is her her main argument. You know, um, so what is she? All right, let me have a look. Um, it is a melancholy truth, yet such is the blessed effect of civilization. The most respectable women are the most oppressed, and unless they have understandings far superior to the common run of understandings taking in both sexes, they must, from being treated like contemptible beings, become contemptible. And th these are her arguments throughout the whole thing. Um, yeah, one of the things she does talk about is, is parental... Um, you know, their upbringing, you know, how, how they're brought up. Um, it is the irregular exercise of parental authority that first injures the mind. So this is her interest in education coming through. And to these irregularities, girls are more subject than boys. The will of those who never allow their will to be disputed unless they happen to be in a good humour when they relax proportionately um, is almost always unreasonable. To elude this arbitrary authority, girls very early learn the lessons which they afterwards practice on their husbands. For I have frequently seen a little sharp face misrule a whole family, excepting that now and then mama's angry will burst out of some accidental cloud. Um, so she, <laughs> these, th th this is the sort of language that she uses. Um, so having um, uh, sort of expressed her interest in this whole area um, she follows through um, at the end of 1790 well this is 1792 the end of 1792 um, by actually going to France um, to to write a book um, for Joseph Johnson um, about what it's like to be on the ground during the French Revolution and that's her reason for going to France um, and consequently she is is she doesn't witness the um, beheading of Louis um, the Sixteenth, but she sees him being taken to his to his um, trial in inverted commas. Um, and she and then the course of of this um, period in France, she meets an American adventurer, really, um, called Gilbert Imlay, um, and he's the he's the first man really that she. Um, forms a, a, a strong relationship with, um, and they become lovers. And at this point, she is um, not prepared to to marry um, because she sees mar mar marriage as a sort of property um, um, transaction. She feels that women are, when they marry, they become another person's property. Um, and she's, she's very keen to preserve her independence, um, so and and they they um, and they have a daughter, a daughter called Fanny. So this is um, Fanny Imlay, um, and Mary, um, one way and another, gets involved with some of um, Gilbert's rather dodgy schemes, which she doesn't approve of, um, because he's trying to make money. You know, he's an American. Um, 
he's come to France. <laughs> um, and, you know, he, he sees sort of making a fortune as a perfectly legitimate um, exercise. And so he's sort of buying up um, aristocratic loot, bullion, silver, um, and, um, yeah, trying to sell it um, to the Swedes in exchange for money. Um, and in the course of, <laughs> in course of all this, there's a boat that goes missing. Um, he gets swindled fundamentally. Um, as he's trying to swindle other people, he gets swindled. And um, what happens is that Mary, who is trying to save her relationship with Gilbert Imlay because it's increasingly becoming stressed, um, they're not spending much time together, he's off, you know, wheeling and dealing, she's um, stuck in a French port with a new baby, doesn't know where he is, um, and then she starts to realise that he's probably found somebody else and, you know, it's not going well, so... She, he tries to get her on side fundamentally and he also is aware of her abilities and he sends her off to Scandinavia to try and find what's happened to his ship which is full of silver bullion. <laughs> and that is the story behind the next book. <laughs> um, so she goes with her baby and her French maid, so she's got another person with her, Marguerite, and the three of them head off to Scandinavia um, to try and um, find out what's happened to this boat and at least preserve some money for Gilbert out of this whole sorry exercise. And I suppose she's hoping that this will bring him back to her. That's really why she's doing it. Um, it doesn't, um, as you can imagine. Um, however, the book comes out of this, um, and again this is written by um, published by Joseph Johnson, and this is in 1796. So she goes in 1795, extremely unusual, you know, a, a woman on her own with a baby and you know, a servant, um, going to Scandinavia. <clears throat> she doesn't speak the language <clears throat> to try and solve a fairly dodgy um, sort of commercial <clears throat> deal that's gone wrong. So what comes out of this is letters written during a short residence to Sweden, Norway and Denmark by Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, and the letters are written to Gilbert, although you don't, you don't, she doesn't actually say that, but that's, that's where they've come from. So this is her description of what she's doing. The writing, the writing travels <coughs> or memoirs has ever been a pleasant employment, for vanity or sensibility always renders it interesting. In writing these desultory letters, I found I could not avoid being continually the first person, the little hero of each tale. So, you know, this was, I tried to correct this fault if it be one, for they were designed for publication, but in proportion as I arranged my thoughts, my letter, I found, became stiff and affected. And I therefore determined to let my remarks and reflections flow unrestrained as I perceived that I could not give a just description of what I saw, but by relating the effect different objects had produced on my mind and feelings whilst the impression was still fresh. So she's writing a travel book. <clears throat> um, and she's travelling in Norway. Um, you know, the sea was boisterous, but as I had an experienced pilot, I did not apprehend any danger. Sometimes I was told boats had driven far out and lost. However, I seldom calculate chances so nicely. Sufficient for the day is the obvious evil. We had to steer among islands and huge rocks, you know. So this is this is the sort of thing. Um, she, um, what does she say? So, uh, she wants to go out. She's um, 
There we go. Um, the young woman whom I mentioned to you proposed rowing me across the water amongst the rocks, but as she was pregnant, I insisted on taking one of the oars and learning to row. <laughs> <laughs> it's not difficult, and I do not know a pleasanter exercise. <laughs> she is out rowing in, in Norway. Um, one of the famous parts of this um, travel story is when she goes to look at um, some some very famous falls in Norway <coughs> called Frederikstad Falls, excuse me. <coughs> Got a frog for some reason. I'm not used to talking for so long. I've got out of the habit. Um, <coughs> so this this um, and this story about these famous falls is apparently um, one of the sources that people later say Coleridge used for his Kublai Khan um, poem. Um, so, you know, this, 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 there's a sort of trail. Um, so reaching the cascade, or rather cataract, the roaring of which had a long time announced its vicinity, my soul was hurried by the falls into a new train of reflections. The impetuous dashing of the rebounding torrent from the dark cavities which mocked the exploring eye produced an equal activity in my mind. My thoughts darted from earth to heaven, and I asked myself why I was chained to life and its misery. Um, so this is her um, her response to the falls. Um, <clears throat> so she does manage, I, it, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of speculation, this book in particular. Um, Linda Gordon talks a lot about what she actually achieved in Norway and Sweden because you don't know. You're never told the story about why she's there. You don't really know, you know, why she's meeting these various people. It, it's not expressed um, publicly. It's treated as a travel book, which is, you know, how it was published. Um, it does seem she did come, manage to make some deal, you know, some out-of-court settlement, in inverted commas, is what is how it's, you know, described in this book. Um, so she does seem to have made had some effect. But having said that, she does not get back with Gilbert Imlay. And this leads her, when she gets back to Britain, to um, two suicide attempts. Um, you know, so she was sort of desperate um, when she returned and really upset but thankfully, um, she met somebody else who was more understanding than Mr. Imlay, and that was William Godwin. They didn't hit it off initially all that well. Um, and in the book that he wrote after her tragically early death, and I'm sorry that I have to mention the tragically early death because it is sad, um, which is she died giving birth to Mary Shelley, which is what happened um, and happened to many people, you know, many women at this time. And Godwin, um, they'd only been together about a year, um, was was so um, grief-stricken that his only way, in a sense, of coping with it was to write a story of her life, which he did almost immediately. Um, and he published this, which is Memoirs of the Author of the Vindication of the Rights of, of, of Women, presumably thinking that she was so well-known he didn't have to write her name, which she was at that point. Um, by William Godwin, um, published in 1798. She died at the end of 1797. Um, and he immediately started to write the story of her life. And in this, um, he talks about, well, first of all, actually, he talks about her family background, which is really interesting. And it's often the, the main source, really, that people have um, when they're writing biographies of her, like um, Lyndall Gordon, about what it was like when she was growing up. One of her things was, she was not formed to be the contented and unresisting subject of a despot. 
but I have heard her remark more than once that when she felt she had done wrong, the reproof or chastisement of her mother, instead of being a terror to her, she found to be the only thing capable of reconciling herself, reconciling her to herself. The blows of her father, on the contrary, which were mere abolitions of a passionate temper, instead of humbling her, roused her indignation. Upon such occasions she felt her superiority and was apt to betray marks of contempt. The quickness of her father's temper led him sometimes to threaten for similar violence towards his wife. When that was the case, Mary would often throw herself between the despot and, the vict and his victim, with the purpose to receive upon her own person the blows that might be directed against her mother. She has even laid whole nights upon the landing place near their chamber door, when mistakenly or with reason she apprehended that her father might break out into paroxysms of violence. So, you know, this is the sort of background she came from, but what is m almost more extraordinary is that Godwin tells us about it, because that is just, nobody does that at all. Um, and this is one of the reasons why his biography is considered a landmark in biographical writing. Um, he was a political philosopher. He, he wrote political justice. He was an anarchist. Um, he um, he thought marriage also was completely um, a, a property transaction which shouldn't occur. Um, and yet he, in his um, grief, writes about his wife in a way that is really touching. Um, so um, he describes, I mean, and, and as I say, um, this, this is a man who was a political philosopher and who actually didn't get on very well with Mary when he first met her. And he, described, they just, he describes their first meeting. Um, it was in the month of November in the same year, this is 1791, that the writer of this narrative himself was first in company with the person to whom it relates, <laughs> Mary. You know, this is his sort of style of, <laughs> of distance. Um, he dined with her, he, meaning me, um, and, at a friend's, together with Mr Thomas Paine and one or two other persons. This was Joseph Johnson they dined with. The invitation was of his own seeking, his object being to see the author of The Rights of Man, Thomas Paine, with whom he'd never conversed. The interview was not fortunate. And now he's getting more personal. Mary and myself parted, mutually displeased with each other. <laughs> I had not read her rights of woman. I had barely looked into her answer to Burke, which was the rights, you know, the vindication against against men, um, and been displeased as a literary man, men are apt to be with a few offences against grammar and other minute points of position, composition. I had therefore little curiosity to see Mrs. Wollstonecraft and a great curiosity to see Thomas Paine. Paine in his general habits is no great talker, and though he threw in occasionally some shrewd and striking remarks, the conversation lay principally between me and Mary. I, of consequence, heard her very frequently when I wished to hear Paine. <laughs> this was the, so this was the start of there. Um, <clears throat> However, when she came back from Scandinavia, um, he met her again. Um, and he was more predisposed to, to like her. Um, and then, especially after he'd read her book, which is quite fascinating, that he'd read the, he read this. He read her book about um, her travels in Scandinavia. Um, and what he said was, um, so he's, yeah, um, the narrative of this voyage is before the world and perhaps a book of travels that so irres irresistibly seizes on the heart never in any other instance found its way from the press. 
Um, if there was ever a book calculated to make a man in love with its author, this appears to me to be the book. <laughs> so this this is a man who, you know, who had not been impressed with it before and he read this book and he feels quite differently. And so, yeah, and he describes their um, relationship in quite a lot of detail. And, of course, this was at a time when... Um, People did not admit to all the things that had happened to her in her life. He describes her suicide attempts. He describes her life with Ilmne. He describes the fact that she had a legitimate daughter. Um, he describes their marriage, the fact that they didn't marry initially um, and then they did when she got pregnant. You know, all of this is not something that um, was acceptable um, at the time. And um, consequently, she... Um, he he felt he was being truthful, and he was being truthful, but her reputation took a deep, deep hit on the back of us, really, really bad hit, and people um, started to refer to her as, you know, immoral and, you know, all the, there was like a massive reaction against her. Um, and into the um, 19th century, she was hardly ever mentioned. People just had, in a sense, forgotten um, what she was like. And so um, her, the growth in her reputation is really only relatively recent um, because at the time she was a famous um, person, but once Godwin has written his book, um, people, I can't remember some of the comments that people made about it, but, you know, they were horrified. They, they thought he'd, he'd um, you know, destroyed the reputation of his wife. It was just, um, and yet he'd done it in sort of, sort of innocence, you know, and grief. Um, and he believed in truth, and that, and you know, this was his way of doing it. So I'll just finish off very briefly with what Richard Holmes, who is another of my favourite authors, if anybody will know, <laughs> um, who wrote, who's written about a lot of people from the Romantic period, um, and in this book, um, he, he, which is called Side Tracks, which he, I think he wrote this in two thousand and five or something, um, and he has a long passage in here about what he calls the feminist and the philosopher. Um, and he um, describes these two books. So he's a biographer. Um, that's his, his um, that's how he describes himself as a biographer. Um, so he writes, so both Wollstonecraft's A Short Residence, which is this one, um, and Godwin's memoirs, that one, are, in my view, crucial documents of, this, of a historic moment of transition and the romantic renewal of hope and feeling. But their literary quality has never been properly recognised before. They, they are also records of the intense disruption it caused. They... And let me find what this is. Sorry. Gloves. I shouldn't really need them for this, especially as it's my book, but having said that... Um, um, they are full of pain, discontent and frustrated happiness. Though adopting different literary forms, the travel book and the biography, they are both essentially confessional. They are most intimately linked by the fact that they both give us portraits of Mary Wollstonecraft, but seen from two distant and distinct and opposite poles of life writing, the autobiography and the biography, self-revelation and the objective character study. These correspond wonderfully to the natural gifts of their authors. Yet both are alike in the urgency of their testament, swiftly composed at times of grief when many of the barriers of reticence were down. 
The result seems to me to be nothing less than a revolution in literary genres. Originally cast within certain well-accepted 18th century conventions, the topographical travelogue and the pious family memoir, they explode these at a number of significant points through sheer intensity of feeling and sincerity of emotion. Wollstonecraft does this through a new wilderness and richness of emotional rhetoric. Um, Godwin through a new frankness and understatement. Both, paradoxically, are characteristic of romanticism. Uh, for the student of literature, and we are all in some sense that, I would put my claim for these beloved and unjustly neglected works precisely. Mary Wollstonecraft's is the most imaginative English travel book since Stern's A Sentimental Journey, and Godwin's is the most significant and revolutionary short biography since Johnson's Life of Richard Savage. Both mark the shift, as well as anything can, from an 18th century to a modern world of feeling. Both bring the inner life of a human being significantly closer to our own experience of it. And that's the end of the story, sadly, um, because Mary died in childbirth. Um, and Godwin went on um, to be the father of Fanny, who was not his natural daughter, and Mary, um, and also of a woman who, stepfather of Claire Claremont, um, who you may have heard, <laughs> who um, became Byron's lover, um, and so it's a very interesting romantic story and Godwin um, became Percy Shelley's father-in-law um, and, as somebody put it, sponged off him. <laughs> um, quite right. Um, quite right. Yeah. Uh, Percy, was, uh, Percy Shelley was an aristocrat. He did have some private money. Um, Godwin struggled to, to, um, you know, to earn a living um, as, a, as, a, as an author. And, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft was, was an author. And they're early, you know, they're not, they're not the aristocratic authors, you know, that we've, we've seen in the, in the early 18th century. And they're not the clergymen, you know, how a lot of the people I've been talking about as authors are either clergymen or lawyers. Um, you know, they've got some other job <laughs> or form of income. Um, these are professional authors and that's the beginning of them. uncover a truly unique collection, visit Kura Heritage Collections online. Find them under Heritage on Auckland Library's website. This podcast was brought to you by Ngā Pātaka Kōrero, Auckland Libraries. Please join us again soon.